As you might guess, today's topic is maybe a little bit difficult. We're going to address evil. Sometimes people get a little squirmish with that. And we've read from the book of Ephesians, and I know you did a lesson last week that came from Ephesians regarding grace from chapter 2. But today we're at the end of Ephesians, and it's kind of a conclusion that says this is what we need to do to satisfy what's in the rest of the letter. So let's understand what's there. The book of Ephesians is is made up of only six chapters. It's very short. It's very easy to read, even though it's Paul's. And these six chapters are grouped into two groups. The first three chapters are what we would call doctrinal, or those things that we believe. The second group of three chapters, four through six, we would group into a, a group called behavioral. In other words, how we are supposed to act to demonstrate what we believe. So leading up to our passage today is all this discussion about what we believe and how we should behave. And now we have a recipe for how we are able to defend and how we should defend our beliefs. So, uh, oddly, as I was preparing for this and reading through, a childhood game popped into my head. Kind of an odd one. Uh, Does anybody remember the game Red Rover, Red Rover? Okay. So we all know the call, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Marty right over, right? And Marty's task is to break through our team's solid wall of bodies, arms linked together. And then we do it in the other direction. Now we know that if Marty gets through, he gets to take one of us back to his team. But if we are successful, we can bring Marty to our team. And we repeat this over and over and over, running back and forth into these solid walls until the end. The conclusion of the game is everybody is on one team. Everybody is unified together. So from our reading, Paul's warning us about the breadth of evil And he's telling us how to fight against that evil that is ever-present. And he provides this image of, of armor and to stand strong as though a solid wall. So, yes, we are engaged in a battle. A battle where the devil wants our team to be wiped out. Now, Paul is writing this letter while he's imprisoned in Rome, and it's the years 60 to 62, so in the first century. And Paul is likely surrounded or has uh, the ability to see lots of Roman soldiers as well as his prison guards, and he can see that they're dressed in armor. Paul is a smart man, and so he understands that this armor protects them. 
and protect specific parts of them. And so this image isn't lost on him, especially as he starts to think about Ephesus and the people known as the Ephesians, and more specifically the people that are the new believers that live in Ephesus. So he knows that this imagery of armor will be familiar to them, and that it will be something that they can understand. So what about Ephesus? Ephesus is a very ancient city, but during this period of time, it was a very prosperous city. It was on the crossroads of a major trade route, and it was also a very important seaport. So that, the result of that is, is that you have a lot of people coming into Ephesus by road or sea. Ephesus has been estimated to be upward of, and there are different estimates, but upward of 250,000 people. This is not a trivial city in this time. It's only third behind Alexandria and Rome. So it's a very, very large city. Being in this crossroads, it's also very important, has a very important trade business going on. And it also has a collection of the population that is multi-ethnic, crosses all the boundaries. The population is made up of certainly the Jews of the time, but also the Greeks and the Romans, as well as all other populations across all of the Mediterranean. So it's a prosperous town. It has multiple cultures that have to be dealt with. And they did. They dealt with this in a way that said, we can allow everybody to be here. But they were a forward-thinking city. They were very modern. They had lots of modern facilities. They had a medical college. They had a very large public library. We don't think of that in those terms in those days. They had underground sewage system. Very unusual very unusual and they also had um, the temple of artemis also known as the temple of diana and there were multiples of those but this particular one was very large and there was a large part of the population that followed the goddess artemis and this particular temple was one of the original seven wonders of the world fairly known place. Uh, Ephesus also had its own celebrity. Mary, yes, the Mary, Mary, mother of Jesus, is said to have retired in Ephesus. Also, John, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, retired there and died there. So even today, you can go to Ephesus, if you can get there, it's actually in Turkey today, uh, but you can go to Ephesus and see the tomb of John and the house of Mary. Now, one of the challenges that this city had because of its diversity, is they adopted a plan that we refer to as pluralism. What that basically means in context for here is that 
they allowed for multiple religions and for multiple authorities to coexist. It allowed them to coexist. Now, it's a little bit of a challenge. How do you deal with, let's just say, Artemis being in charge? Christ is in charge. How do you deal with that? That's where the pluralism comes in. And it's all done in the name of tolerance. And it's done in the name of being in sync with everybody. So imagine that this pluralism that's not just accepted, but is entrenched into this culture, the new believers, the ones that want to follow Christ. Imagine their struggle. They're going to profess, as we do, the one God, the one religion, the one ultimate truth. But they're stuck in this environment where that's not accepted. They would be rejected and in their time, potentially persecuted. So, you can imagine Paul sitting in prison and he's thinking about these people. And he's the, the new believers that are stuck in this city. And how, how does he communicate to them that they're okay? And what do they have to do? Well, so looking at the condition of the city, you know that this is a lot of sermon fodder for Paul. And explains why he spent a lot of time there. A lot of energy talking about who the uh, Ephesians really were. Even though the title of this book, this letter, is the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, it's much more than that. And in our introductory uh, page in front of the book of Ephesians in the NRSV Bible, I'll quote this, it says the following. It says that Ephesians is the only circular letter in the Pauline corpus intended for several churches and therefore not addressing issues of one particular church. So in other words, Paul intended to use the Ephesian condition as a model for how to talk to multiple churches. And it goes on to say, Ephesians is a sermon meant to be proclaimed in the church. Its rhetoric serves as praise of the Lord and His people, Jews and Gentiles united in Christ, and emphasizes the theme of unity and harmony in Christ in all settings, including church and the family. So if we think now again back to the state, the condition, if you will, of Ephesus. It's prosperous, it's educated. It's a mixing pool, if you will. We look at the, that and parallel that with our country. Parallel the behavior of the Ephesians at large with the behavior of the United States at large. So what that does though is we can see these parallels and now we can understand how the book or the letter of the, to the Ephesians is meant for more than one church more than one condition in one church. It applied to the Ephesians then, and it applies to us today.
So if it applies to us today, and we look at our reading for today, does that mean we're to take up our armor and take up our sword and go fight battles? It's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous application of what's being said here. And we see it actually misused throughout history. One of the best known, one, known uh, conditions of this is the Crusades. The Crusades took up arms and went and fought battles, all because of Christianity. We see it in today's terms of not Christianity necessarily, but other religions that have similar concept that try to impose a theocracy. And we have battles against those. So the challenge here is to not think about this as a battle of, against flesh and blood, but a battle against evil. So we see in verse 11, we're told to put on the armor of God. Again, not to fight flesh and blood, but to stand against the wiles of the devil. I love that phrase, the wiles of the devil. Wiles is not a word we use very often today. Not an ancient word, but we don't use it. But the Greek word that is translated as wiles is methodia. And methodia can also be defined as craftiness, trickery, scheming, deceit. So now when we talk about the wiles of the devil, we can say substitute the deceit of the devil. And we see that now there is this strong influence that comes in. So, but we normally think of, when we think of the evil of Satan, we think in big terms typically. Global wars driven by some knucklehead. Genocide. We think in terms of that level of evil. But with methodia, craftiness. We need to make sure that we apply our thinking of evil as it influences our daily lives, as it steps in and pushes us one way or another. For example, someday someone might come to you and say that they want you to tell a twisted truth, and I'll call it a lie, just so they can cover up their mistake. Someday, somebody might come to you and offer you a gift. And you know you shouldn't take it because it's not appropriate. But you do it anyway, just so you don't hurt their feelings. Someday, somebody may offer you a gift of something that you actually want. But in order to get it, you have to compromise your relationship with God. This is how Satan works. In those little teeny, tiny cracks to push us one way or another. 
and specifically not towards God. Remember, evil is anything, and I stress anything, that separates us from God. So this is pretty ominous. It's a big deal. If it's that big and difficult and, and hits each one of us, what do we do? Do we just roll over and say, okay, I give up? Paul gives us the answer of what to do. Paul says, first, we have to put on the armor of God. What that does is if we look at armor, armor is protection. Armor is a defensive tool. So what do we have here? What has he described for us? We first have the belt. So what does the belt and armor look like? It's a very wide leather belt that's intended to do two things. One, to hold weapons, but the other to hold up the toga or any other robes that the soldier is wearing to hold it up and keep it fastened tight so that it doesn't interfere with his mobility. It allows him to move around. So we have the belt of truth. We are to speak the truth of love to one another. Then we have the breastplate. The breastplate covers the entire torso. And it's intended to protect our heart, our lungs, all of our internal organs from any kind of damage to keep us safe. We have the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness protects our heart from evil. Then we have the shield. The Roman shield was always made of wood, and it very frequently was covered in a layer of metal, but it was always covered in a layer of leather. So just before battle, the Roman soldiers would soak their shields in water so that the leather would soak up the water and they could go into battle and be protected from the flaming arrows that would be shot at them so their shields wouldn't just burn up. So we have the shield of faith. Faith is what activates the power of God. And then we have the helmet. The helmet was typically a, a bronze headpiece that covered most of the head and had two large cheek plates, all intended to protect the most important part of a soldier, his head. But Paul tells us we have this, the helmet of salvation. Now, salvation, we think of getting into heaven, but salvation is so much more than that. Salvation is being right with Christ, having health and wholeness in Christ. So what Paul is telling us to do is to, to be healthy spiritually, physically, emotionally, and in relationship with others. 
And then finally we have the sword of the Spirit. Also called the Word of God. Now, interesting here, the word word, the Greek word for that, is not what we would typically think. We typically think of the Greek word logos. So when we say the logos of God, it, it refers to the entirety of Scripture. And it refers to the, to, and I'm going to make up a word, the enfleshment of that word in Jesus Christ. But that's not the word used here. The word used here is rima. And rima is just an utterance. But it's an utterance that is particular and specific to the conditions at that moment. By way of example, when Jesus talked about his sayings, he referred to them as rima. Well, I've skipped to the last one piece. It's actually in the middle of the list, but saving it for last. What about those shoes? It's almost when we read that very small phrase about the shoes, it's almost as though the shoes are being ignored. Because it says, put on whatever. In other words, the shoes could be anything. But the extension of that is, put on whatever will allow you to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, that is, the gospel of peace. Put on whatever will allow you to do that. I think that makes our shoes the most important part of our armor. It's our call to action. It's our, or allows for, our mission. The shoes provide mobility. The shoes provide strong foothold so that we can proclaim the gospel of peace. So our passage tells us to stand and speak. To stand and speak. And with all of the armor, we can say, yes, we have good defenses. But does that mean that we are to just simply stand and take all of the assaults and just go, okay, offend it off that one, and then call it a day? No. We have to do that as a part of our defense of our belief. We have to defend ourselves, but we also have to move outward and push the attacks away. And we can do that with our shoes. We have mobility for that. So, one of the things about the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ on the cross is the elimination of hostility. And this idea is very central to the whole letter of Ephesians because it gives an understanding of the heart of the gospel message. 
it's in this passage that we see reconciliation as being the requirement. We're not told to go out and fight. We're told to defend and push away. Reconciliation within our, within our group. Why is that important? Because we know that we're going to be attacked and we have to stand together. And if we have division, we can't be together. So Paul is telling us how to defend ourselves. And first, we put on the armor of God. Well, that implies there's at least a second. And the second in this case is we are instructed to pray. We don't always understand how we pray, but if we say, as Paul says, to pray in the Spirit, we can face our spiritual battles and prayers connect us to God through the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't want to just pray about the big things. We want to pray about those little things. We want to pray about those things that impact us in the smallest of ways. And we want to make sure that we don't wait until we're desperate and stumble around and maybe forget what God's phone number might be. So evil is amongst us. What does evil do? Evil causes division in the community. It weakens our wall of defense and it separates us from God. So we're not alone in the battle. We know that if we can push evil away, God is always there with us. And we have the armor of God. But we also have the unity of community and of church. We can have that unity to keep us together so that we can fight a solid battle, so that we don't allow Marty to run between and separate our lines. So we pray. And that's what we should do. We pray for ourselves and we support those prayers with good habits so that we can strengthen our armor. We pray for others so that they can be strong and wise and protected and led by the power of God. And we pray in the Spirit, asking God to reveal our weaknesses so that He can repair the cracks in our armor. We don't need to overcome on our own. It says, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. In the end, God will defeat evil, and He will do that. But we have to defend every day so that that power is not weakened. And we must defend against the evil and the wily ways of the devil. Please join me in prayer. Mighty Lord, 
Help us to recognize the influences of evil, no matter how large or how small, so that we can defend against it. Give us the strength to endure and the wisdom to see the support of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to take the next steps in reconciling the church through proclaiming the gospel of peace. Amen.